0: You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 57 of the Common Descent Podcast. Spring is upon us here in the Northern Hemisphere, and what better subject to talk about as spring approaches than flowers. Yeah, it's fitting. This episode we are talking about the evolution of angiosperms, that is, flowering plants. Plants that produce flowers and fruits are the most common terrestrial plants by far on our planet today, but they haven't always been. Nope. And the origins of angiosperms are this long-standing mystery. Flowering plants are a huge deal. They have a huge modern diversity and their origins are a fascinating subject. And this topic was requested several times by Robin and Jake and Jeff and Beth and our patron Lydia. Thank you all for your suggestions. Yeah, popular topic. Now, longtime listeners of the podcast will be saying, "Wait a minute." A plants episode? You guys don't do plants episodes yourselves, (laughs) and that's true. And you're right. You are correct, which is why we are very happy to announce that after the news, we will be joined once again by our friend Allie Baumgartner. Woo! Paleolorax, she speaks for the fossil trees. (laughs) She's going to take us through the story of angiosperms. We're very excited to welcome her back. Allie is wonderful. She's a fantastic guest, Mm -hmm. so we're excited for that absolutely it's gonna it's it's gonna be a lot of fun yes yes so stay tuned but first a few announcements as always a reminder that the podcast is supported in large part by patreon we have a number a whole a growing list of patrons who support us financially and allow us to continue hosting and running the podcast if you are a patron you will get all sorts of cool goodies so be sure if you're a patron make sure you check those out Speaking of those goodies, there is, uh, by the time this episode comes out, we will have released the 2018 Outtakes Reel for patrons. So look at that. And before the end of the month, keep an eye out for another bonus news. Yeah. If you are not a patron and you're looking for ways to support us, or if you are a patron and you want some merchandise... We have officially opened up a Common Descent podcast store. Mm -hmm. Link in the episode description on Zazzle.com. Get yourself a shirt or a mug or a phone case or a hat or something with our logo on it and show your support. A little bit of that money goes to us and we get all of the brand recognition (laughs) as you carry it around. Be our billboards. Be our billboards. (laughs) One other thing we have. So... A year ago, almost, we did a live stream with two sloth scientists and did a live stream Q&A about sloths. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was on YouTube. It was a lot of fun. We have officially audioified it, and that will be showing up in your podcast feed. So keep an eye out for that. The sloth chat live stream audio.
1: <laughs> We're finally releasing the audio to the public. So you all can hear yes. it for, th- for the first time on your podcast devices. It's coming and, out of the vault. Yeah, put it to rest. Listen <laughs> to the discussion.
0: Yes, we we waited for the 1 year anniversary. It's not at all that we continued putting it off for 12 months <laughs> and just not getting around to it. That yeah, we kept going, oh, sloth chat, sloth. Okay, sloth right, chat. We got to do that. Hang on. Right. Let's finish let's we got to yep. finish Spotlight and Spooky and others <laughs> first. I think that's all of our announcements for this episode. Yeah, that's all I can think of. Which means it's time, before we get to flowers, for the news. Every episode, we pick a few items from news in paleontology, evolution, and related sciences, starting with whatever Wills brought.
1: I brought some new species of island mammals found in the Cayman Islands that are only like 300 years old. Oh, that's fun. Island, We like islands. Islands are cool. And these are interesting because of what they entail and suggest and some of the evidence of how they were found. Uh, This is all new research by Gary Morgan et al., published in the Bulletin of the American Museum of Natural History, and we will be linking to the press release uh, by Zoological Society of London on EurekAlert. Alert. So these new species of mammals... Uh, identified on the Cayman Islands. For any of you who don't know where the Cayman Islands are, these are three islands Grand Cayman, Little Cayman, and Cayman Brac or Brock in the northwestern Caribbean Sea. So this is, you know, south of North America near the Car- Caribbean Islands and Cuba, but not with them. They're kind of off to the side.
0: Are there Caymans on the Cayman Islands?
1: No, there should not be. Uh, oh, not that I know weird. of. Weird. Uh, I know, right? It's, there's, there's (laughs) crocodiles on the Cayman Islands. Uh, So close. I believe they're there today. I'd have to double check for sure that what their range reaches to, but I'd be very surprised if they weren't. But we know they were there in the past because the remains of these mammals actually show signs of being digested by crocodiles,
0: Oh,
1: which is why I clicked on this topic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering, this is, I was like, this seems like a strange one for Will to pick. I
1: clicked on it because the title (laughs) said new spe- new species found after being digested by crocodiles and then that was in like the first sentence and then the rest of the article didn't talk about it again which <laughs> is still cool stuff so we're still going to talk about it but I was a little like oh swindled the new species are two cousins of the hutia which are these large rodents they they look very much like nutria they sound similar but not hmm. for the same reasons Uh, these are big rodents that live in the mangroves of like Cuba today and so semi-aquatic, the Capromes pylorides Lewisi and Geocapromes caimanensis, And then the third was a little shrew-ish mammal, probably insectivorous, called Nesophontes hemisingulus. These were identified with both morphological and genetic features. They're recent enough because they're, like we said at the beginning, or like I said at the beginning, only like 300 years old or so. And so... Recent enough to do some genetic analysis. The analysis also shows that they most likely went extinct in the 1700s, which is not a date we're usually dealing with on the podcast, but it's kind of cool. Except for episode 55. (laughs) Yep. And speaking of that episode, it is almost surely due to European settlers bringing invasive species to the island yeah it's rats and
0: cats and things
1: sinks up way too close uh so Mm -hmm. they they say that they'd be very surprised basically if there were a different cause than uh humans coming in in fact a lot of the cayman islands have been devastated since then most of the native mammal species are no longer on the cayman islands you know so things like the cayman sloths and monkeys are no longer there so cayman islands have been hit pretty hard which is why these specimens become very interesting, because this actually gives us some insights into the patterns of island extinction. Especially the Capromis have been noted before they went extinct, we believe, because in 1586, Sir Francis Drake visited the Cayman Islands and described some animals that, quoting, were either described as Conies, which i'm not sure what animal that refers to but Hmm. also little beasts like cats they think may refer to these mammals
0: interesting so
1: we may have actually you know the settlers encountered and noted them before they went extinct a while before they went extinct and their closest cousins as i mentioned already are still found in cuba same genus just different subspecies and that's interesting because that's 155 miles away or 250 kilometers away. So this this is not like a crazy new animal, but it's giving us a look at some recent island extinction. It's also giving us a look at potential distribution. How did they get to the Cayman Islands and how were they distributed uh, among those islands? And... Why did they not survive there, but they're still found in Cuba, are all questions that could give us more information about how to chart island extinctions, which are still going on to this day.
0: Yeah, and how to prepare for further island extinctions, Hopefully, will continue to happen. Yeah, adjust for the future. I wonder how they identified that they were eaten by crocs. Was it... I assumed that it was etching from digestive acids.
1: Yeah, I couldn't find... I, I didn't go through the whole paper just because of time. But I couldn't mm-hmm. find a mention of exactly what it showed. But they said it showed signs of digestion, which I would assume okay. is etching. And I assume partial digestion because a lot of crocs
0: fully digest bone. Yeah, that's really cool. Right? It's fun. Good stuff. My first bit of news is sticking with the recent trend of non-fossil things. Not old things. this is about a modern evolutionary experiment. Oh man with these newses in our, our modern extinction
1: episode we're skewing. That's true yeah we're, <laughs> we're losing we're, we're We're falling off
0: the train. We're off brand here. <laughs> and next episode the Oregon Trail. How exciting This is similar to a couple of newses we've we've mentioned in recent episodes of modern experiments showing evolutionary trends. This one is fascinating. It is the evolution of lice on birds. In the past, we've talked about, you know, animals in different environments, evolving, you know, see, watching them evolve, evolving in response to certain pressures. This is parasite evolution, which is really cool.
1: Yeah, it's it, that's a really fascinating topic that gets looked over a lot.
0: This is research by Sarah Bush et al. in Evolution Letters, and we'll have a link to an article by Ed Yong at The Atlantic. Feather lice are ectoparasites that live on birds, they live in the plumage of birds, and they eat feathers and skin, you know, dead skin flakes and such. Uh, Sarah Bush herself is quoted in the article as saying there is, quote, pretty much one species of louse per species of bird. That's crazy. <laughs> like a lot of parasites, they are very specialized. Living on different types of birds, you will develop different features normally the lice are this sort of yellowish color if you've ever seen a louse you know these they look kind of like termites they're this kind of pale orangish color but they're known uh, across different bird species to camouflage somewhat against the bird that they live in cool and if you're wondering what a louse has to camouflage itself against it's the bird <laughs> because birds will preen if they spot a louse they'll snip it out of their feathers while they're preening this experiment captured a bunch of urban pigeons, so your classic rock, you know, city pigeons, rock pigeons, from Salt Lake City, gassed the lice off of them with carbon dioxide to <laughs> completely delouse them, and then experimented by placing lice onto the pigeons. Now, one thing, the one thing that they tested uh, that was mentioned in the paper, before they did the major part of the experiment that we'll talk about, they painted the lice... Oh, different colors to test if the color actually affected whether they were preened. And they did, in fact, find that the lice that closely matched bird feathers were less likely to be preened. So it does seem to offer an advantage. So then they placed over 2,000 lice on almost 100 pigeons, ranging from white to black to gray feathers. Wow. And they let the lice live there on the captive pigeons, for four years, which for the lice was about 60 generations. Wow! Plenty of time for natural selection. And then they measured luminosity of the lice. Basically, are they changing lightness versus darkness? They found that on the black colored pigeons, the lice became slightly darker. On the white pigeons, the lice became much brighter. And on the gray pigeons, the lice stayed pretty much the same. Beautiful. So they absolutely did change over just four years to match partially the color of the bird. They even noted that they started to match. Some of the lice started to converge with the coloration, the, the light, lightness versus darkness, that we see on other lice species that live on other birds. They compared the, the lice on the white birds had, had adapted a lightness that was very similar to a different species of louse that lives on a different species of white bird. Cool. <laughs> which is pretty cool. That's fantastic. And then, to test the effects of preening, they had uh, a certain set of birds that they fitted little plastic clips on their beaks, which prevented them from being able to fully close their the tips of their beaks. Huh. So they could still eat and stuff, but they couldn't close the beak which means they couldn't preen lice off of themselves Mm -hmm. and they found that on the birds that couldn't preen the lice didn't change colors that's so great so it is absolutely an adaptation in response to preening that if you're the wrong color you're gonna get preened and the, the the lice that are better camouflaged are reproducing and spreading their color traits really cool once again Very simple, very straight. Well, it's not very simple, but it's very straightforward with just it's exactly the results we expect. And what a wonderful thing to be able to predict and then confirm experimentally.
1: Yeah, that's once again, anytime we get just one of those really cool, we made an observation, built a hypothesis, tested the hypothesis, and then tested the results of that test. It's just so cool when you can just see it step by step. That's really awesome. Uh, one of the things that stuck on me, I, I knew parasites were very species specific. I didn't think external parasites would have been so much so because like fleas just hop all over. You know, I know there are a bunch hmm. of different kinds of fleas, but like, you know, your your dog could give your cat fleas.
0: That's true.
1: So like that, I'm surprised that external things because like ticks just hop onto anything anything. Yeah. Yeah, I get these are specialized lights. But with the ex- the results of the experiment, it makes a lot more sense because now instead of hopping on and off they're living on this animal. So yes. that that animal is their habitat and they have to specialize to it. So it makes sense that you could absolutely have one population speciate just like that if they were yep. if you would put one species of life on an island, come back you know, 100 years, there's going to be however many birds, that many lice.
0: That makes sense.
1: That's awesome.
0: And indeed, the paper describes the the situation as the lice adapting to, quote, host islands. Yes! Yes! That each <gasps> bird species is basically acting like an island.
1: Dibs on that D&D concept. Ho- ooh. ooh. <laughs> <Yes>. Dibs. <laughs> I'm
0: excited to play in that game.
1: <laughs> That's really cool. Nice. All right. Well to To take it away from the modern a bit and from the planet, I would like to talk about how studying our geology may be able to reveal patterns among the cosmos.
0: This is a weird news selection. Yeah, it is, but they're I cool. like it. they're neat
1: stuff. <laughs> so this is going we're going to talk about the geological orrery. What a good word orrery. It's a good word.
0: Listeners, do you know what an orrery is? You've
1: probably seen one, but they almost never use this term. This is that super cool, fancy, mechanical miniature of the solar system. Yeah,
0: like a model solar system that moves the planets.
1: And the really nice around. ones have gears so that things move in the right move, right speeds and patterns in relation to one another. And so yep. you can just you could push Earth and everything else will move as it should.
0: That is called an orrery. And Didn't they? Well, there was an episode of Avatar where they had an orrery. Yeah, where they discovered they were trying to predict the eclipse. They're trying to
1: figure out when the eclipse happens so that they can invade the Fire Kingdom, and then they get chased out of the library. Yeah, that that's one. that's the episode where Appa gets stolen. It's a sad
0: episode. Oh no.
1: Anyway, news. <laughs> so this research is by Paul Olson et al. in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and we'll be linking to the article by Viviane Collier in Smithsonian Magazine. So a little bit of background. For what we're what they're building this idea off of, there is a very cool concept in climate science and uh, astronomy called Milankovitch cycles, and this has to do with the fact that as Earth goes around the sun, and other planets do the same, and move near and away from Earth, and the moon orbits us, and stuff's constantly moving all around us, they all have gravity. All of which affect the Earth. Mars, when it passes by, pulls on us a little bit. And yep. when Venus goes by, it pulls on us a little bit. So this all affect the pattern of Earth's orbits. And there's three things that they look into. Uh, eccentricity, which is the actual path we take around the sun. Right, how oval or rounded our path is. What shape our orbit is. The tilt or obliquity, uh, which is... Ha- how what angle are we at on our axis, mm-hmm. and the wobble? Because believe it or not, the Earth wobbles. We are not completely motionless. Our axis can just bounce a little bit sometimes, and sometimes it's more than a little bit, or more than it usually would.
0: And that's the precession. Yeah, like a top precession is like when you when yes you spin a top, and as the top starts to lose its spin, it's it spirals just a little bit. Yeah, it starts that the, the very top of it starts going in circles. Our axis, the Earth does that over time.
1: Pretty much, and it and it's pretty much constant. Just not enough for you to like
0: stand on Earth pole and be like, "Do you feel unsteady? I feel unsteady." It's not. It's enough that the North Star has changed. Yes, like ten thousand years ago or so, the North Star was a different star because we were pointing that the North Pole pointed to a different part of the cosmos. And
1: that's kind of what this is getting into is that. We have a pretty good understanding of how our solar system moves, but it's a very complex system, and it is very difficult to map that backwards because... A lot has changed in our solar system from the day it was born to now. And some of our, some things in the solar system are very steady. Others aren't. Like, this is one of the reasons Pluto was demoted. Its orbit, sometimes it's the last planet, sometimes it isn't. It depends on what its <laughs> orbit is doing at that time. So it can shift. It's not stable or as stable as other bodies. And we have, I'm sure everyone, you know, is either seen a thing that, you know, can show you where, what stars were in the sky on different dates, or is aware of the fact that we can calculate that, you know, we've mapped the movements and we can turn the clock backwards. But every time we look back a little bit, we lose a little bit of clarity. We gain some errors in our estimates and those errors, those errors build up to a point where after about 50 to 60 million years, looking back with that mathematical, you know, uh, system, it's pretty much useless. It's not reliable enough. Fuzzy. So they are hoping that by looking at our planet, they might be able to map a little bit more clearly the movement of our celestial bodies. And this is because as those Milankovitch cycles adjust, the tilt, the distance, the wobble, the shape of the orbit, all of those things affect the climate because that's going to affect how much sun is hitting different parts of the Earth for how long. Yep. And sunlight is the driving force behind climate. It heats. It causes things to be cool when it's not there. So that's what changes our climate from time to time as these cycles change. If we look back through cores of Earth and figure out the patterns in climate in the past, we might be able to match those to how other things are affecting us during that time and causing the climate to behave that way. Thus, geological orrery. It's a big concept, but they went and looked at a couple of different sites. The two big ones were the Mesozoic Newark Supergroup in New Jersey, which is like 200 to 227 million years ago. Yeah, Triassic stuff. And then really they looked nice at Triassic stuff. Yes, it's a famous area. They also looked at the Triassic section of the Chinle Formation in Arizona's Petrified Forest National Park. They took thousands of feet of core material from these sites, like literally thousands. So a lot of coring, a lot of looking through the layers, uh, looking for climactic patterns of shifts. And one they found was a shift of monsoon cycles of water levels in the lakes rising and falling due to increases in monsoons and decreases of monsoons over series of years. And this matched up pretty well with what they expected from what they had predicted for movements of the the solar system and how it would affect Earth, there was one little gap of 2 million years that just didn't quite fit. They were able to match it to a unique little temporary orbit pattern between Mars and Earth that came in every now and then to screw things up and then would leave again.
0: Fascinating.
1: And as they got more information, they were finally able to match this to a pattern uh, between Jupiter and Venus because they were able to date these seasonal patterns with the Chinle formation using uh, volcanic ash and zircon minerals. And so those could be radiometrically dated. We've talked about zircon before. That's how we dated our oldest rocks. Yes. And they found a 405,000 year cycle between Jupiter and Venus that has existed for about 200 million years, basically as it is today. And they were able to match that in these cores. That's big. That's big. That's ambitious. That's And it <laughs> is. And people have come out to say, eh. one person was quoted <laughs> saying, it is a very complex house of cards that isn't resting on sound scientific foundation, they claim. Mm. Because they pointed out that there are a couple of gaps in the timeline, in the stratigraphy of the two sites. Now, the team was able to go back and uranium lead date... The Newark site to show it was a continuous sequence, so there might be some debate there. But the Chilean formation was put down by uh, successive river sediment, so it's not necessarily consistent, which may mean that using that site to date the patterns at first identified at the other site may not be 100% reliable. So people have come out to say, cool, but also that's a lot and you're not basing it off of a ton yet. It's kind of what they're saying.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's several levels of inference there. Yes. You're looking at the rock record to infer the climate, to infer the Earth's orbital pattern, to infer gravitational interactions of the planets. And there's a lot of things. For me, the big thing is that there's a lot that affects the climate. Yes. So I I, I, then on the one hand, I'm like, that's that's very ambitious. There's a lot of room for error. Mm -hmm. On the other hand... Paul Olsen is a big name. And Paul Olsen... I met Paul, actually, oh, cool. a, a, a little while back. He... You mentioned they're working in the Newark Supergroup. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, Paul Olsen named the Newark Supergroup. <laughs> like, he's been working there for decades. And has been working on this concept for a while. Yep. And so it's one of those where I'm like, well, this is sh- this supposedly a very reliable mm-hmm. scientist who does good work. On the other hand, this is a real... Big concept. Yep. So I will be interested to see what more they can do uh, moving forward.
1: Absolutely. Now, even with the criticisms, Spencer Lucas was the person who initially pointed out those issues. He still says this is a very cool and good course of study because looking into it from this point of view could be very important to help us understand why global climate changes because – Honestly, we don't fully understand how the patterns of global climate change are affected by all the things that affect them. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's a lot to that. It's a big system. And sometimes there are times where it, we know it changed. We can't give you an answer as to why it changed. Especially the further back yes. you go,
0: that becomes harder and harder.
1: Absolutely. So lots of potential here. If this pans out with more studies, this could be a huge
0: new area of study, which is awesome. Yeah, very exciting. I love it. Well, the last bit of news, I'm going to bring it back. I'm going to bring it back recent. <laughs> just just a few thousand years. <laughs> Reel it in. This is a study by a group of linguists who are arguing that the change in humans' diets, by, that thanks to the rise of agriculture, may have affected language. Cool. Yeah. This is, this is very you study. This is very me study. I'm very excited about it. <laughs> this research is by Damian Blasi at All in Science, and we'll link to an article in National Geographic by Michael Greshko. So, human dentition typically, and for, for most of our human history, humans are were born with a, a bit of an overbite in their jaws, like right? the front teeth kind of peek, you know, uh, move are forward ahead of the bottom teeth. But as we eat and we grow up, the wear on our teeth tends to shift it to a more edge-to-edge bite. However, once agriculture started and we started eating softer and easier foods, because we're making foods for ourselves, less wear on the teeth means that adults tend to retain more of that overbite that they have as kids. The wear is not changing the tooth arrangement, which they suggest may have made it easier for us to make labiodental sounds. Hmm. So here's a bit of linguistics for you. Labiodental sounds are sounds that we make when our teeth touch our lips. Specifically, uh, in English, what we call F and V. So fa and va, to make those consonants, your teeth have to touch your lips. You put your top teeth on your bottom lip and go Labio f- Labiodental, lip, teeth. So they're suggesting that those sounds may have become more common when the as adults retain the overbite to test this they did a few things first they made models uh, biomechanical models to test if that actually is true and they found that an overbite makes it 29 percent it takes 29 percent less energy to make a bilabial sound f or v with an overbite which means That they're easier to say by accident. Yes. That it's easier to make that noise, which means it could slip into uh, language. And they also looked at modern hunter-gatherer societies, which are not agricultural, right? They're not making their own food the same way that, you know, farming societies are. And they found that F sounds are significantly less common in hunter-gatherer societies compared to agricultural societies... And they looked at a language phylogeny, an evolutionary tree of language for Indo-European languages. Because you can do that. You can link up languages and see where they diverged from and which languages are related to each other. Same way you can do with species, kind of similar at least. And they found in their predictive language evolution that labiodental sounds, F's and V's, became more common starting around 6,000 years ago or so which is also roughly the time that dairy and grain farming became widespread. So they are suggesting that we have a few different pieces of evidence here that suggest there is a connection between those particular sounds in language and the agricultural-based diets of different groups of people.
1: That's really cool.
0: The idea here being that these sounds could start working their way into a language... That they, they argue that, that they it might be that they were s- becoming s- stated accidentally. Yes. And then early on, they might not have been a big, you know, they might not have been considered a different sound. Mm-hmm. But that as time went on and people realized, oh, hey, here's this new sound that we keep saying, maybe we can diversify how our language uses that sound, start to differentiate between them. I love that because that's basically a very complex way of saying that us, us
1: growing our own food and not having to eat such tough food caused us to develop a speech impediment that we rolled into our language. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Which is the joke I
1: was going to make originally.
0: And then you said that part and I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) Well, and if you look at languages today, now I go on a little linguistic rant. If you look at languages today, like Um, Spanish is is an interesting case Where Spanish does not have a V sound Not Mm -hmm, really mm -hmm. It has a B sound similar to English But it doesn't have a V sound So if you accidentally made a V It wouldn't really change the meaning of your word Like in English, if you said bat versus vat Those are two different words with different meanings Yes But if you're speaking Spanish And you accidentally went va Presumably someone would be like That was a weird pronunciation But I still get what you mean Let's go on Yes now, people. there are other people who have said that maybe, you know, take it easy on this. <laughs> and they've pointed out that on the one hand, language is very flexible and that there are many cultural reasons why certain sounds might come about or and become important or less important, even difficult sounds. Like, it's not just about energy efficiency. It's about, is it, is it culturally significant? Because then energy isn't going to make a difference. Yep. Especially because while technically it might be energy and energetically easier to say F's with an overbite, the difference is not substantial. Yeah. Like, it doesn't take a lot of effort. Also, people are generally always really cautious when trying to link biological factors with cultural factors, because then you start running the very dangerous road of pointing out that certain people are biologically better at certain things. Yes. Yes which is a dangerous path to go down historically. And in general, hu- humans have the same biological tools for yes. language. Even you know, There's variation, obviously, but for the most part, it's not a huge difference. It's, if you grow up learning how to do something, you can usually do it pretty darn well. We're not, all, we're not different enough to have that sort of distinction. And we keep ad-mixing. Yes. Which is the other thing that language can do, is we could just pick up stuff from other languages. There's a lot of horizontal gene transfer (laughs) among languages. Well, I think about that with... uh, The whole thing this
1: kept making me think of was accents, is the same way that Mm -hmm. a a buh in Spanish could easily become a va, is the same reason that you can understand a Japanese person that has a very thick Japanese-English accent. Because you still get what word they're forming, even if R's or L's are flipping you still understand the yeah. word because really it's the sound is similar enough that it's not actually that critical. You know, if they suddenly yeah. put a P and somewhere in Bob, you'd be confused, but <laughs> that's not what's happening.
0: Yeah. And there's all sorts of cultural context to it. Yeah. Now, the last thing that these authors pointed out that I thought was really cool is if this is true, right? If there is some biological input here, and we can start reconstructing how our biology affected our language, which it, you know, seems reasonable that it may have had some contribution, Uh, we might be able to start reconstructing how ancient languages were spoken. Oh, cool. Languages that we know of through writings, but we don't have anyone who speaks them anymore. Maybe we can start more accurately reconstructing how they sounded, which is a really cool idea. That is really interesting. So we'll see. Cool indeed well that's enough of that i got to go off on a little language tangent
2: <laughs>
0: uh, actually i forgot to mention the example i was gonna mention i was going to do the korean spanish comparison and then i remembered that i forgot the much more closer to home one is that french has two oos. oh it, yeah there's a, in french there's a difference between two and two and in english you'd be like what but they distinguish between them but anyway that's a whole other tangent i'm going to stop now it's time for the main event now we're going to go way back to the Mesozoic era to talk about the origins, evolution, and diversification of flowering plants with our friend, Ali Baumgartner. Stick around after the break for some flower talk. Yay! Hello, Allie
3: welcome back i'm so glad to be back
0: we are glad to have you back now we should well before we do anything else we should in in case people haven't heard you on the podcast before which shame on you who is this person and why should we listen to what she has to say about flowers
3: Well, my name is Allie Baumgartner. Uh, Supposedly, I am some sort of expert on this. Um, So I am a PhD student at Baylor University in the geology department, and I study paleobotany, um, dabbling in a little bit of modern botany and paleoclimate research.
0: Excellent. You may have heard Allie before on the podcast in episode 38, which was about grass, and then at the end of episode forty-five, Allie made a special appearance to answer one of our patron questions. Allie, this makes you the most frequent additional voice on the podcast. You have been on the podcast three times now. It's like SNL hosts. Like <laughs> yes. Who yes, posted more.
3: <laughs> yes. Do I get a trophy?
0: <laughs> this makes you Steve Martin. It's, it'll now. be in the mail.
3: Okay. Okay. Keep,
0: keep an eye out for it.
3: <laughs> okay. It's gonna be.
0: It's gonna be great. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Patrons, if you could send us some money to buy a trophy, (laughs) that would be really cool. Allie, we are here today to talk about not, not just flowers, not just angiosperms, flowering plants, but specifically the evolution of angiosperms, because it's such a huge topic that it deserves its own episode. But before we do that, of course, what is an angiosperm? What makes a plant an angiosperm?
3: So defining an angiosperm, there are two ways to do it. You can basically either define it by what it is or what it's not. So (laughs) technically, an angiosperm, angio means vessel, and sperm means seed. So it is a plant that has its seeds in a vessel, specifically the fruit. So it has these protected seeds. Um, Gymnosperm, conifers, that means naked seed. So its seeds are just willy-nilly being spread all over there. Um, Oh, my. I know it sounds terrible when you say it like that, but it's true. you know, they, they're not protected. And so um, the one of the nice things about fruit is that it protects the seed and it makes it easier and enticing to be dispersed. Um, so it's not just things like apples and fruits and stuff like that. Acorns, Samara. So like the helicopters from a maple, those are also fruits. Um, and so. There are many types of angiosperms. Um, So it's anything that makes a flower and a fruit. So even plants that aren't known for their flowers, like grasses, you don't think about, oh, those beautiful grass flowers. Those are still flowering plants because they make flowers and fruits. They just might not be like apple trees or things that we're we're used to.
0: Mm -hmm. So every plant... That makes a flower, makes a fruit, and every plant that makes a fruit makes a flower.
3: Yes, because that's where this is literally the birds and the bees right here. Um, because that's how you that's how you pollinate and make fruit. Um, so flowers are where fruit come from. So basically, you have the flower. Uh, it's pollinated. You the the pollen goes inside. It fertilizes the uh, the ovule, and that develops into this fruit. So. Yes. <laughs> These things always <laughs> go together.
0: Okay. So, what are some of the the more nitty-gritty details of what makes we don't have to go into all of them because I know there's a lot.
3: There's a lot. <laughs> if so... you, if
0: we were in biology class, what would the teacher explain is uh, <laughs> the Andrew rest of the traits? episode is taxonomy.
1: <laughs> oh,
3: no, we're not doing that. Um so there are um so not just having the so having the fruit and having the flower, also aspects of just the seed itself. You have um, a double integument, so you have two layers that are protecting the seed, and you have double per- fertilization. So that's basically what's like making the, the fertilizing the seed and fertilizing the uh, like the fleshy part of the fruit. Um, and then there's also aspects of the wood. So the wood in angiosperms is much uh, more refined you could say than uh, the, wor- the wood of gymnosperms. So other other plants that make trees, um their wood is not as um efficient in the way that it uh you transport water and nutrients.
0: Uh okay. So we're talking like pine versus oak.
3: Yes. Yes. And so if you were to look at the way that um specifically like uh water, um, moves through the plant, it's superficially the same, water moves through the plant through tubes. Um, but the way that it does that is different. Um, because, um, basically the way that it works in angiosperms is, um, if something is damaged, it is easier to, if, if parts of the wood are damaged, it's easier to like block those off. Like, okay, hey, we're not going to have anything to do with them anymore. <laughs> it's harder to do in a, in a gymnosperm. All right. Yeah. Okay. So there, there are other, other other things, but I am not as interested in them, so I, I don't know if I can give you a, uh, an interesting explanation.
0: Oh, that's fine. I'm sure we'll get more into it in a little bit.
3: Oh, there's a lot.
0: <laughs> but before we keep talking about angiosperms, what is the modern diversity of angiosperms? Once again, briefly, because I know that it's almost all of the plants. Right.
3: So, And that's the important thing to remember, is if you are thinking about a plant... there is a very, very, very good chance that you are thinking of an angiosperm. So grass, most of the trees, unless you're thinking of a pine tree, it is probably, so oaks and maples and tulips and palms, and most plants that you come in uh, in contact with in, in your everyday life are angiosperms, which means that in terms of modern diversity, with the exception of... Like the tundra taiga, where you do have these big conifer forests, most of the, the modern diversity, um, most of the modern biomes are dominated by angiosperms. Cactus angio- is an angiosperm. Grass is an angiosperm. Most um, hardwoods, tho- hardwood trees, those are angiosperms. So by and large, if you can think of an environment, it's full of angiosperms.
0: <laughs> and if you look out your window...
3: Yes, unless you are in a cabin in the woods in, you know, northern Canada, (laughs) you're probably looking at angiosperms. (laughs) This
1: this sounds like those old horror movies. They
0: may even be in backyards near you. It's true.
3: Your (laughs) lawn is angiosperms.
0: So I guess maybe a a better question, uh, an easier question is what are not angiosperms?
3: That is a very good question. So the groups that are not angiosperms, um, there is one other group of trees, so that's going to be your gymnosperms, um, and that's conifers, so pine trees. Um, it also includes cycads, um, ginkgos, basically any tree that is not an angiosperm is probably a gymnosperm. Um, and Those then, are,
0: those make cones. Yes. So they, you think you're pine cones, yeah. and they often all have needle Yes, they don't
3: always. They're not always evergreen, and they don't always have needle leaves, but okay. that is a good generalization. If you ever okay. want me to talk about gymnosperms, I can do that too.
0: <laughs> uh, Listeners, you heard that. You heard her.
2: <laughs>
3: but um, so those are the other um, tree groups. Then there's all. Then there's um, one more group of vascular plants. Um, so vascular plants means, um, plants that have a vascular system. So they are upright and off the ground. So that's going to be ferns, which most people are familiar with ferns and lycophytes, which you're probably not familiar with. Um, they're, it's a very uncommon group now, but they are often called the fern allies. So they are closely related and similar to ferns. And then you All have right. your non-vascular plants. That's, um, bryophytes and hornworts and liverworts. So mosses um, and things that look like mosses. So these are non-vascular plants. They don't have a vascular system. So they don't have a water system to allow them to grow tall. They basically have to be really low um, and close to the ground because they cannot transport water up.
0: Right. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. So then everything else. Everything <laughs> what we're talking about today.
3: Basically everything else. And so there's, I, I keep talking about trees. I am biased towards trees. I like trees best. They're charismatic and cool. <laughs> um, but you also have shrubs, which just tend to be smaller trees with more branches. So if you take with a less tree. Ambition. Yes, exactly. If you take, <laughs> they lack focus.
1: Yeah. So, if you take, <laughs> so if you
3: take a tree and like scale it down and multiply the number of stems. That's a shrub or a bush, All right. and and then you have herbaceous things. So when I like when I talked about grass before, so these are things that do not have that secondary growth where it grows out and grows wood. Um, so these tend to have a shorter lifespan, tend to year, live a year or, or so. So that's going to be like wildflowers, um, yeah, grasses, that sort of thing.
0: Cool. Okay. Do you have a favorite angiosperm?
3: Oh wow. Um, that's hard.
0: That's mean. <laughs>
3: that was, I was not prepared for that. Um,
0: this question wasn't on the list of questions no, that I, I did sent pre- to Allie. Take did your favorite child. This.
3: I know. Well, okay. I can tell you what my favorite scientific name is for an angiosperm. That'll do. Um, it is the sweet gum tree. It is liquid amber striraciflua. And the reason it's called oh, Liquid cool. Amber, I know, right? It's such a good name.
0: That is. That's a good name. Liquid Amber is the genus. The, Liquid yes. Liquid Amber. Liquid
3: yeah. Amber. <laughs> and it's because it has this beautiful golden resin um, that comes out of it. Yeah. Ooh. I know, right? And sweet gum. I also like sweet gum trees in general. They have really pretty leaves that look like, um, oh my goodness. Um, what? Oh my goodness. I didn't watch the movie as a child because I'm a terrible paleont- uh, paleontologist. Three Tree stars. Tree stars. It looks like tree stars. <laughs>
0: Will <leaves. laughs> was Will was on top of it. Uh,
3: yeah. So, yeah, so um, sweet gum trees. Their leaves look like um, they they look sort of like tree star leaves. And then they have these really funny fruits that look. They're called gumballs. It's a it's a sweet gum tree. And there's they're about the size of a golf ball. A similar texture. They're kind of they're um, they can be kind of spiky looking. Oh, My yeah. cats loves to play with these
1: i played with those (laughs) when i was a kid we had those in my yard somewhere at one house and i remember those
3: yeah they're they're very common in the in the southeast uh, of the u.s i love sweet gum trees all
1: right yes no i am there with you i didn't realize what they were but yeah those are awesome
3: you learned something
0: (laughs) we have sweet gum at the gray fossil site
3: yes yes because that's
0: where i learned the genus liquid amber liquid ambar
3: Yes, Ambar with an, a, ambar. an extra A. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, so that's some modern talk, but let's let's rewind the clock. Let's go back to the Paleozoic, right? So we're hitting 300 million years ago or so and earlier. Before there were angiosperms, what plants, if we're walking around in a Carboniferous forest or a Permian forest before angiosperms really show up, what kind of plants would have been the big deal vegetation?
3: Well... Let's go back even further.
0: Oh, Oh, sure. Go right ahead. You take the reins. Allie, take the wheel.
3: (laughs) Botanist here. Um, So if you go back to like the Silurian or the Devonian, that's where you're going to get your earliest land plants. And so that's where you're going to have like Rhynia. So from the Rhynia church. And that Mm -hmm. is basically a little bit more than a stick. Um, So there's not much going on. So you're not really, the earliest plants tend to be very small. They're not very well vascularized. Um, they tend to be in these wet environments, so they don't have to move water very far. So that those early plants, uh, they don't have seeds, they have spores. So those groups are not really represented by any analog today. Those are gone. Um, and then through time, we then... Um, as we get into those coal swamps and the Carboniferous, that's when we begin to see things that superficially look similar to what we have today. There are trees, but there are no trees like what we have today. So you have these um, related to ferns and related to these lycophytes, these fern allies. So they're, they're vascular plants, but they don't have seeds. They are still these spore plants. So uh, basically just sending out their uh, reproductive Uh, bits into the ether and hoping something good happens (laughs) so that's what we're seeing in um throughout the middle to end of the paleozoic and then when we get into it towards the end of the paleozoic into the mesozoic so into the triassic that's when we see the rise and the uh the spread of gymnosperms so that's going to be your ginkgos your conifers and your cycads so they, um, they had their day. So this is when we see the rise of these large seed plants. and there are other, there are other seed plant groups. There used to be seed ferns uh, mm-hmm. that are no longer around today. Um, but yeah, so that's what really dominated in, at the end of the uh, Paleozoic and the beginning of the, the Mesozoic, the uh, dominant um, feature of the landscape is going to be these gymnosperms. So if you think about um, if you think about dinosaurs, you're probably not going to have uh, you're probably not going to have any grass. That wasn't really widespread until much later. Um, you are going to have some flowering plants, but probably not for most of the time that you have dinosaurs. It's going to be ferns and cycads and conifers. Cool. Yeah.
0: So in the Triassic, you're we've got, you know, our earliest mammals and turtles and dinosaurs and stuff are growing up without angiosperms at all with those gymnosperms and friends. Right. When do we see the first angiosperms, and what do those look like?
3: That is a very good question, and that is a very hard question because <laughs> um, the short answer is meh. Uh, the long answer is... All
0: right. Thanks for coming, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a great episode. So I learned um, a lot.
3: It depends on what method you're using to determine uh, what the first angiosperm is. So if you're looking at the molecular pl- clock... Um, Early molecular clock estimates were anywhere from Permian to Cretaceous. Okay.
0: So molecular clock is DNA. We're estimating how long it would take for that divergence to have happened from DNA differences.
3: Yes. And if you look at um, uh, DNA from the chloroplast of the the cell, um, it could be as early as the carboniferous.
1: Wow!
3: Right. So the recalibrated molecular clock estimate is um, late, uh, late Jurassic between one hundred and eighty-eight to one hundred and
2: forty-one. All right. Okay.
3: Um. So that's if you're using the recalibrated molecular clock. So that's when they took um more of the fossil evidence and reincorporated um and kind of recalculated it.
1: It's a slightly more narrow band. Yes,
3: and <laughs> yeah. it's it's more in um it's actually much more similar to what we're seeing in terms of the fossils. So if you look at the pollen record, the earliest, um, the earliest, earliest pollen that is angiosperm-like
0: is from the (laughs) the, the,
3: uh, late Triassic. Okay. But again, that is angiosperm-like, so it still might not be. The earliest um, pollen that we are very confident is um, angiosperm is from the early Cretaceous. And that means that if we're finding it in the fossil record, it has to already be there. We're not ever going to find the first one. So that late Jurassic estimate seems very reasonable, given that our earliest pollen is from the early Cretaceous. And our earliest macro fossil is also from uh, the early Cretaceous, about 125 million years ago. So that's um, Archaea fructus, and that means ancient fruit.
0: Nice. Is this the one that came out recently? There was one that there was a plant that came out just recently. We talked about it in our news that was suspected to be an even earlier angiosperm.
3: Right. Um no. So Archaea fructis, um is pretty there's not much contention with that. Um the right, more okay. the yeah. So with, every time you push it back, people are like, eh, "Let's double check <laughs> this." <laughs> <laughs> um but th- so this is without a doubt we are very confident that this is. There are probably earlier ones? um but this is the, one, the earliest one that we know without we, we I say without a doubt it's still paleontology we don't yeah. we have doubts um <laughs> but it is early cretaceous about 125 million years ago
1: that we know well enough to not use air quotes every time yes we, <laughs> yes. <laughs>
3: yes yes exactly um and so that's the when the where is also hard to figure out so um there are three hypotheses to where the um to where, what part of the world um, angiosperms first started. Some people um, put forth that it could be the Arctic. There's Triassic pollen from Norway that might be angiosperm. Um, It it resembles uh, angiosperm pollen. It it can be hard to to say from pollen. Um, And if they originally arose in the Arctic, that could explain the lack of fossils. Um, Because it's not okay, you have this bias against it. But it's not there's not a lot of fossil evidence for that. So it's not a very convincing argument. Um, There hasn't been a lot of support for it. Um, Another, another idea is that um, they arose in North Africa. So somewhere between the equator and uh, 25 degrees north latitude uh, because that's where a lot of the earliest pollen is coming from, like Morocco, uh, even into Israel. But again, that's just the pollen that we're finding. So again, like this isn't really concrete. It's not well supported. The most, um, probably the most well supported uh, idea of where the uh, angiosperms first came from is the tropics. So today, the tropics are the um, the center of modern diversity of angiosperms. Yeah. Um, and just because it is the center of modern diversity, you can't necessarily assume. But that's also where we're getting... Um, we are getting fossils from there and also the um, basal angiosperms. So the modern groups that are most similar... To the early angiosperms are found in very high percentages, really high proportions, in um, the tropics, specifically in Southeast Asia and Southwest uh, Pacific Islands. So, right. okay. so the the thought is that if we have all this diversity here and we have the oldest groups here, maybe that's because that's where they came from. Right. So we're still trying to figure that out, but that's the current the current idea.
1: That's like I know it's something that obviously if they started they had to start somewhere (laughs) right but until you were saying it i didn't think about how weird a concept it is for it to be like oh have you seen the angiosperms that are only right here like that's such an alien very much like when we talked about grass where it's an alien idea to picture a world devoid of grass like right what what do you carpet with if you don't have (laughs) grass it's angiosperms kind your law made Yeah. Like, angiosperms kind of has that same feeling of, like, just finding them in one area of the world. I My brain just always kind of treated of, like, and then, su- like, at some point there were angiosperms. But I can't picture there not being angiosperms because ha- they're everywhere. Right. That's just... That's such a weird concept of them being in one little area.
3: Right. And, well, th- that's because, like, that's easy to... It's easy to do, right? Because plants are kind of the green background. Yeah. And so you never really think about like, where did they come from? Mm -hmm. Um, And even today, so some of the research that I do is looking at how... um, groups of plants that have origins in different parts of the world so whether or not they are more gondwanan so they have a southern hemisphere no, no. by um, origin or they're more laurasian so more northern hemisphere and how they have these different relationships um, with climate, which is really interesting because that's not something that people normally think about we think about that with animals but yes, we forget exactly. that plants right. do the same thing
1: well and because <laughs> since since plants don't you know go on migrations you know well,
3: they do but very slowly
1: yeah da- yeah exactly da- like <laughs> you can't you can't watch the annual conifer migration the mass sponge know. migration yeah so <laughs> since they're not moving in that way they they literally grow to where they're going
2: right <laughs> you know right
1: it is it's a weird you have to kind of rewire the way you think about distribution
3: yeah, and and not even just like where in the world is Carmen Sandiego of these plants, <laughs> but where what kind of environment? So we also don't know that. Um, so we have again a couple of ideas. So there's the um, possible herbaceous origin, basically that um, they were probably you know the idea that they were. Um, Small And they were basically weeds and they lived in the understory and um, you know, then burst forth when they got a chance. I mean, there is some there is some support to this, but it's mostly the absence of not support. Um, so <laughs> there's very little angiosperm wood from the, the earliest so the idea is like well maybe they weren't making wood um their seeds tended to be small and thin uh they had small leaves um they were they seemed to be like what we'd expect um if they were weedy but the the record is biased towards these riparian environments these river environments that's where you get fossils um and, this is, and that's not the environment where we find a lot of our basal angiosperms. So maybe that's not where they started. Um, my favorite hypothesis is, uh, I just like the name. It's called the dark and disturbed hypothesis.
2: Ooh, I know. Nice. It's
3: so good. The evanescence <laughs> hypothesis. Yes. <laughs> um, and that's basically, <laughs> the dark and disturbed uh, hypothesis is basically that um, these plants were living in these understory, low light closed forest, wet, disturbed environments um, that had a lot of flooding. And that's based on um, Amborella, which is this basal angiosperm, this modern angiosperm that um, is one of the most, uh, it's one of the oldest members of the group. Um, but again, we don't have a fossil record that actually like supports this. It's just based on the modern, maybe that's where it came from. And then the last, is the last, um, Potential origin is the aquatic origin. So Nymphales is another group of, of these basal angiosperms, these really old angiosperms. So Nymphales is the water lilies. So the uh, water lilies are aquatic. Um, mm-hmm. And so possibly there has been some discussion that possibly Archaeofructus, that earliest confirmed, yes, we're pretty sure you're an angiosperm, um, is actually part of that group, is part of uh, Nymphales. If that's true, then that would lead, um, that would help support the, uh, this aquatic origin. As it stands, there is phylogenetic support for all three of these origins. Um, there's only fossil evidence to support the herbaceous and aquatic origins. In other words, uh, we don't know.
1: This would be the equivalent of the aquatic angiosperm hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> it's
0: this is it's funny because we've done a few different origins episodes. We did humans, mm-hmm, we did mm-hmm. birds, we did whales. Episodes eighteen, thirty-seven, and forty-one. <laughs> and each of those, it was it was nice because we were able to say, "Here's all the steps." Here's all the steps we see in the fossil record, this wonderful, beautiful transition. This discussion is starting to sound a lot more like when we talked about snake evolution. Mm -hmm. Yes. Where it's like, there weren't snakes, and there were snakes, and here are our ideas that we're not sure which one is right about where they came from.
3: And that's (laughs) not surprising if you think about the fact that both plants and snakes have a much lower preservation potential than a lot of other groups.
0: This is very true. I
3: I was explaining this to one of my students um, yesterday, actually, that while plants preserve much better in the fossil record than most people think, because most people think that they don't preserve,
0: Mm -hmm. um, so it is greater
3: than zero, (laughs) um, it's not nearly as high as, say, bone. Um, You know, they have hard parts, and wood, if you get wood, there are people who work on wood, and you can say things based on wood, but it's not the best way to identify a, a, you know, a plant in fact the best way to identify a plant is based on its flower so well angiosperms oh, okay. but yeah the best way so, to yeah angiosperms I... must
0: be very convenient yeah so <laughs> so the best way to identify
3: an angiosperm is by its flower um because um the wood can be super variable and can be very similar between distinct groups same thing with uh leaves leaf shape is super variable so looking at the le- looking at the leaves can't necessarily help you identify it um But flowers are super ephemeral, right? You're only going to have flowers whenever Mm -hmm. it it flowers. So spring, fall, whatever. So, you know, leaves might be on the tree all year round and they periodically drop them or they don't. But, you know, they, they are on the tree all year round and they make a whole bunch of them. But flowers often don't fall off the tree. They often just kind of turn into the fruit. Yeah. So unless you preserve it when the flower is flowering... You're out of luck. Yeah. So yeah, and especially if these things, um, or if they are, originate in places that aren't going to be preserved, and they aren't made of something that's likely to be preserved, it just compounds it. That, but looking for, um, looking for the earliest angiosperm is. There's a lucrative, <laughs> uh, a lucrative <laughs> thing to look for because I have seen so many papers. You have talked about these papers. I've been to yeah. talks. People are really interested in finding the earliest angiosperm because it's not something we know about, and they, it's you gotta have that money shot of showing the the uh, reconstruction of the flower.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's when you know you yep. made it. Interesting. <laughs> Is there much in the way of a transition in the fossil record of angiosperms? Like, do we see the gradual development of our, of familiar traits?
3: Not really. Be, um, so, pale- so Archaeofructus, um, it, it it is a little bit more uh, like you can tell that it's an, like it's older, but it still looks like an angiosperm, um, and that's the thing. So, like, even in the in in the Cretaceous. Um, honestly, the biggest difference between um, early angiosperms and later, you know, modern angiosperms is that <laughs> my my colleagues and I joke that in the, the, those early angiosperms were just trying everything, so you have all <laughs> sorts of shapes, and we are just gonna test this out. Um, so, for example, um, early sycamores um, sometimes you would have. Um, just a single leaf and sometimes they would be compound and sometimes they would be lobed and sometimes they would have more lobes or fewer lobes they're just testing everything to see what sticks Um, and then as as time goes on you have um, groups beginning to be more limited in the like the shapes of their their leaves and things like that but by and large it's there are no angiosperms and boom we got angiosperms
0: (laughs) so the time period that we're in now right we're in that late jurassic into the early cretaceous mm-hmm. so to set the stage for this this time period of origins we are smack dab in the middle of the age of dinosaurs this is also the time that we see the origin of birds so the numbers we've been citing here are the same numbers we've been citing we were citing in episode 37 about bird evolution uh we, this is also when you start to see this big shift in dinosaur terrestrial faunas from the Jurassic groups into the Cretaceous groups, and you start to get, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. I assume uh, some more specialized herbivorous dinosaurs. Uh, that's that's a little bit of foreshadowing. Nice. So this was a dynamic time.
1: Yes.
3: Well, and if you think about it, it would make sense that you're going to be seeing all of these changes uh, in the the, fa- the fauna because you have these changes in the flora, right? Because that means you're getting these new environments that somebody's got to try out. So that's you're, you're seeing these this diversification diversification of both these animal groups and the plant groups at the same time, which is cool.
1: It makes sense. I mean, yeah. that you you expect to see that because. Plants are kind of important for the food chain. A little bit. We
3: are the most... I say we. I'm not a plant. Uh-
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're learning something about Allie. I wish I could there's photosynthesize. A,
0: there's a- Pamela, I- <laughs> she's, Allie. She's dark and disturbed.
3: Yeah. Yes. No, but but um, it's, it's true. And also, once you get into the Cretaceous, you're getting pretty close to something you would recognize in terms of the... Um, the orientation of the continents are getting, they're getting mm-hmm. closer, right? Um, you don't, uh, you're, you're seeing, you know, like the, um, the sea in the center of North America is going away. You're beginning to have a modern, um, orientation of the, of the, um, of the continents. You're having, um, um, the modern groups, are becoming more common and so we're, we're beginning to get to something that if you were to get out of your time machine apart from the very large dinosaurs would sort of seem normal
1: yeah just once again drives home because you know so often people group all the mesozoic together and all the dinosaurs together it's like it went from an alien landscape at the beginning of the Mesozoic to something that you could have seen yourself gardening yes <laughs> like, Yes. And that's that's significant. Like the the entire backdrop of the world shifted.
3: Right. Because, you know, you're in the Paleozoic and it is a foreign world. And then as you move through the Mesozoic, you're you're getting closer to home. And then by the time <laughs> you're in the Cenozoic, you know, this is basically normal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> What's really interesting about this sort of origins mystery is that and one of our requesters actually requested it this way who requested this topic Darwin referred to it famously the origins of, of angiosperms as a abominable mystery and that was 150 years ago
3: and i agree with him
0: because like, <laughs> he's a smart guy that darwin i know he's, episode 28
3: he's going somewhere um but yeah we we still have so many questions we don't really know what they what they actually looked like because most of what the best way to actually know you're looking at an angiosperm is by looking at the fruit right. or the flower. And so it is, it can be really difficult to have an idea of what the rest of the plant looks like. Um, we're not a hundred percent sure who they evolved from. Um, they're probably sis- a sister group to to gymnosperms. So they're like they're cousins rather than one leading to the next. Um, we don't know where they came from. We don't really know when they came from. Um, so there's a lot. there. It is still a mystery. Um, and there, there's still a lot that we need to do. So we need funding so that we can go out and dig up a whole <laughs> bunch of rocks to try to find these things.
1: Absolutely.
0: So let's get talking then about angiosperm fossils themselves, what they look like, what sort of fossils we know. After this short break. So, the origins of angiosperms are an abominable mystery. Yes. But I'm curious to know, what do angiosperm fossils look like? How yes. do you know when you see a plant that you're looking at an angiosperm?
3: So the best way, like I said before, the best way to tell that you are looking at an angiosperm is if you have a flower.
2: Mm -hmm. Right.
3: Because there are by and large, um, many other aspects of, of angiosperms can look very similar to some groups of, uh, gymnosperms. So in North America, we are, when we think of conifers, we think of needle leaf evergreen. And there are some deciduous uh, conifers even in North America, but in other parts of the world, there are broad leaf conifers. So they, there are con- the conifers have leaves that we would associate with angiosperms. So right. having a broad leaf is not necessarily a good indication. Really, the only way that you can tell that you are looking at an angiosperm is if you are looking at the fruit or the flower.
1: So flowers nowadays, most people recognize as being a tool to entice pollinators.
3: Yes, it's true.
1: What did flowers before pollinators were widespread? Because like, were flowers a big thing before pollination interactions were widespread or... Because I know that like the pollinator symbi- symbiosis was something that kicked off at one point, but I don't know. Were there many flowers before that? Were they doing something?
3: Well, actually, kind of. So there are right. other groups that have things that are similar to f- fruits and flowers. So the, um, the Benetitalians, uh, which is an extinct group um, that we're not quite sure who they're related to. Um, It could be gymnosperms, it could be angiosperms, they could be their own thing um, separately. Um, But they have basically these superficial fruit flower organs. They're not the same as angiosperms, but they sort of fill the same role. This is not the first time that a plant was like, you know, it would be great if I had a little bit of help. Uh, (laughs) So, so, uh, yeah, so even before angiosperms, there were groups... That would um, that would try to you know entice right, animals yeah. to do them a solid. <laughs>
0: Neat. Huh. Yeah. What are the features? So I, I, I we, we read in that the new potential earliest flower mm-hmm. that we reported on in the news in episode something or other. I don't remember the news. What? They were talking. I know. I don't have the topics. I don't have all the news. <laughs> yeah. The news is hard. It's fair. They were talking about the seed. Yes. So you can tell an angiosperm seed yes. from, say, a gymnosperm seed, I assume, because that's what defines the group.
3: Right, exactly. So it's, uh, so like I mentioned at the beginning, um, so in the seed, you have this double integument. So you have two, um, basically, skin layers on the outside of the, the seed, and you'll have double fertilization for that reason. Um, so having a double integument is a good indication that you are looking at an angiosperm seed. Um however, okay. that's while you can do that, um, that's not going to be um, a particularly common way um, just because the amount of the amount of technology you need to be able to see that because you will either need to actually cut the seed or scan the seed in such a way that you can see the double integument layers.
0: Okay, so this is, Super microscopy, uh-huh. x ray scanning. Ah, yes. I, it's well, hard. <laughs> speaking of, of super microscopy, earlier you said you mentioned the earliest angiosperm pollen. Yes. How do you tell angiosperm pollen from other plant pollen? Yes, I was going to ask that too. So, <laughs> it's on a bee. Okay. It's being carried by a bee. <laughs> this is the yes. part
3: where I'm going to refer to my um, paleobotany, introduction to paleobotany uh, class notes.
0: Yes.
2: Because
3: oh. I don't remember off the top of my head, <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> but I have like, I I have my notes here for this very reason. Yes. Okay, for uh, the
0: for the listener, Allie is holding a book that has plants on the outside of it,
3: that's true. and many pages. <laughs> it, I I filled it. Okay, <laughs> uh, so the long answer is that it has um, triculpate pollen. So that re- oh of course that refers to the shape. Um, I do not pulpite. work with pollen. <laughs> I work with leaves, <laughs> um, but it is the shape of it. It also, um, if you have the pollen structure, so not just the pollen grains, but if you actually have, um, like the, uh, the, the, the part of the, the flower or the cone, um, that has the pollen in it, you can actually see based on, um, like how it's arranged. Like I am not, this is okay. not what I do. Okay. Um, but, yeah. but
0: how it's sort of held in the plant before yeah. it's released.
3: Exactly. Exactly. How they store um, it. Right. Exactly. Um, but the thing of so the thing about it, it's basically you, it is much harder to say for sure that this is an angiosperm based on the pollen. Um, so there are some pollen, there are some types of pollen that uh, some shapes of pollen that are super distinct, like um, pine pollen looks like mickey mouse
1: so oh yeah yeah <laughs> i've seen that picture before <laughs>
3: yeah that, so that's the pollen green that uh, most people know but other groups um can be a lot more variable or just less distinct um and this is going to be old not that that really matters pollen is basically indestructible um but it's again the this is mostly based on um like being, a, being an angiosperm is primarily based on having um, these fruits and flowers. So the pollen isn't necessarily going to be the best way um, to identify it.
0: Okay. That's good to know. It, sounds, it, it really does. We keep reinforcing this point that all the convenient stuff is not identifiable mm-hmm. stuff.
3: Right. So the most commonly <laughs> preserved part of a plant is the leaf.
0: And yes. the leaf
3: is one of the worst ways to identify a plant. <laughs> that's <laughs> I, what I, I use.
1: <laughs> I feel like that's oh, probably got to be like if you were able if if someone were to come back after their time machine trip and be like, "Well, I got you a few hairs."
3: Yes. Exactly. Uh,
1: yep. For you to identify visually.
3: Yes. It- that is precisely it. It's something that you shed a whole lot of, mm-hmm. but became, can be super variable. Like, what if you permed that day? Now we think you have got curly hair, but that's not yeah. real. Yeah, <laughs> it's, that's, it's just like that.
0: So, what are some famous angiosperms from the beginning of angiosperms? What are so every, every all of our origin stories have these famous yeah the big names Archaeopteryx and and <laughs> Ar, what are who are some of the superstars of early angiosperm evolution?
3: Well, there is Archaeofructus that I mentioned before to go with that mm-hmm. A pattern of those, you know, important ones. <laughs> yes. So um, Archaeofructus again, that name means ancient um, fruit. So that is the earliest. We're pretty sure that that is actually an angiosperm that was found in China. And I, if I remember correctly, they have multiple. Parts of this, so they they have they have found multiple yeah they found multiple specimens they found multiple parts so we can be pretty pretty sure actually an angiosperm the earliest could be angiosperm macrofossil is uh, San Miguelia, and that's um, from the Triassic of Colorado, but there's not a lot of material. It seems like it looks. Like it's an angiosperm, but it could be um, it could be one of these more derived gymnosperms. We don't have a fruit. Okay. Um, There are things that
0: tricky gymnosperm. Exactly.
3: There's been debate. We think it might be a fruit. We think it could be a cone. It's it's unclear. But also Triassic would push back the origin substantially, um, especially considering what we expect from um, the molecular clock. One other um, early like famous early angiosperm could be an early angiosperm, uh, is uh, Nanjinganthus. So this is from China. This is from the early Jurassic. So this is about the... um, It still falls within what our molecular clock would estimate at about 174 million years ago. Again, they found a possible fruit, but uh, work that was published this year uh, suggests that it's probably more closely related to conifers, that it's probably more of a cone than a fruit because if you it it can be really hard to tell the difference between a cone and the fruit depending on the type of preservation that you have because they're basically the same thing they are a way of protecting your seeds
1: yeah that's what i was about to say is that they're uh conceptually the the same purpose and and idea so if you had a a softer looking cone i could see how that'd just be like a weird looking fruit
3: right exactly especially
1: if it's smushed and
0: you know, yeah, fossilized and,
3: Right. It's, you know, you got well, some taphonomy going on.
0: Yeah. Well, well, and a fruit has to have started somewhere.
3: Right. Exactly.
0: So if they evolved from gymnosperms or something like gymnosperms, you would expect to see transitional stages. Mm-hmm. Right. Something
3: that looks probably a lot like a gymnosperm. And that's going to make it harder to be able to say, like, where along this transition do we say, and these are angiosperms. Right. So it makes it hard. There aren't every few years there is a new oldest um, flowering plant <laughs> uh,
2: which,
3: which means that we're constantly adding things to the list and then there are more uh, studies suggest that eh, maybe not um, but archaeofructus is, is pretty much like yes we can we can be pretty confident of this and I bet you that no one that I if I were to walk out to the street right now no one would have heard of archaeofructus. Just kind Mm-mm. of sad.
0: Dear listeners, let us know <laughs> if you had heard of Archaeopteryx before this episode. Because you've heard of Archaeopteryx. Yes. Let us know if you had heard of Archaeopteryx before this episode. We will find out. Did you know? Absolutely.
3: Did you know that there is an early tree, not an angiosperm, but an early tree, one of the earliest trees that was called Archaeopteryx.
0: Yes. <laughs> I love it.
3: Literally, one, two letters different. So I'm just going to pretend that you're not talking about the the silly bird thing, but you're talking about a tree. That's fun. I
0: wasn't. I wasn't. (laughs) I was talking about the cool thing. The cool thing. (laughs) The tree. Are there, speaking of cool things, are there other, beyond the the origin story, are there other famous angiosperm fossils? So,
3: really, not a lot. Because um, I'm... There's not a lot of taxonomy that's been done in this because it's hard. Um, so if you've ever heard of the fossil plant Calamites, mm-hmm. Calamites is related to a horsetail. And that's so that name is based on the stem. There is Sigmaria which is based on what we found out was the roots and on which we found out later was the, uh, the leaves. So different parts of the plant can have different names and we run into that a lot. So it's oh. hard to say all of these things are the same thing. So there's a lot of like, uh, there's a lot of redescribing and saying, Hey, that thing is actually related. It's actually like the fruit of this thing. These are the leaves. We found them connected. Um, but one i would say famous um fossil angiosperm is paranymphaea so paranymphaea is a um fossil ancient water lily so it's and it is probably actually an emergent aquatic so emergent aquatic means that it is um emerging out of the water so like a water lily sits on top of the water Emergent aquatic. Um,
0: Okay, so it protrudes... Yes. ...up out of... Okay, I was... You said emerging out of the water, and I was picturing, like, a sea monster... Crawling up, actively coming <laughs> up out of the water. are
3: plants. <laughs> they do less moving. That,
0: that's why I was confused.
3: <laughs> uh, but so the, the cool thing about
0: <laughs> my God, that's horrifying. <laughs> I don't like this. Oh, thank goodness it's extinct.
3: You don't. Well, I probably shouldn't tell you about you know Venus flytraps and things like right. that. then. they do move. No,
0: you shouldn't. <laughs> it is a whole what? other episode. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they live on what planet?
3: <laughs> um but so so one of the cool things about paranymphaea is that is it is a um paleocene indicator fossil so oh. yes so you don't have paranymphaea in the cretaceous but if um but you do find it in the very earliest paleocene so if you and it's a really it's a really pretty leaf it's mostly found from leaves um but yeah so that's a cool fossil that um that's that's Often, if you are using fossil plants to do relative dating on a site, um, peronymphea is an example of, we know we're in the Paleocene. Bye-bye dinosaurs, except for birds. Okay. But unfortunately, there's not a lot. um, Another one that I like is, um, I am admittedly biased, is um, Florissantia.
0: Oh, that sounds familiar.
3: Floresantia is a beautiful flower, so um, it is like it is exceptional. You have fantastic preservation, and it is found at the Florissant Fossil Beds National Monument, um, yep. <laughs> where I was once an intern. And it is it is beautiful. So if you ever look up pictures of Floresantia, the the preservation is fantastic, and it's just a really pretty flower because. It looks like it could have just fallen off of a tree and landed on a rock and like, look, Florissantia.
0: <laughs> we'll see if we can get pictures of these plants for the blog posts. So check out that in the blog post, listeners. So th- here's a question that perhaps you just answered. Uh, do you have a favorite fossil angiosperm?
3: Oh,
2: <laughs>
0: I know. See, I did it again. I know.
3: you think I would have <laughs> figured it out. Okay, so I do have a soft spot for uh, Florissantia. Oh, that's hard. So I, I work with fossil angiosperms. Yes. Uh, most of mine, um, taxonomy is really hard. Like I said, um, the, the part of a plant that is most likely to be preserved is the leaf. The worst way to identify a plant is with the leaf. Um, <laughs> so I don't know the names of a lot of my fossils, but I, um, so my fossils, I say mine. Um, so the fossils that I study <laughs> specifically are from the um, early Miocene of Kenya, Rusinga Island, uh, Kenya, and there are. I have some fossil. Um, they are probably closely related to like acacia.
0: Okay. So we know how much you like acacia. I
3: love acacia. <laughs> I lied. Acacia is my favorite angiosperm. How can I forget? Acacias literally make me cry. I love them so much. Um, but I have these these fossil um, acacia leaves, and they're really. They're really cute um, because they're not very big. They're just these little tiny leaflets all over on my rocks. Uh, adorable, they are. Adorable.
0: I, would you be able to send us some pictures of those uh, so that we could put them in the blog post?
3: Yes, please. Okay. Yes. yes.
0: After, I will remind well, you afterwards. Yes. yes. Listeners, check out the blog post. Yes. All right. So we've we've talked about where angiosperms came from. We talked about sort of what we know of the start of angiosperms, what angiosperm fossils are like, but the most perhaps exciting thing about angiosperms isn't, well, we don't know very much about how they got started, so the most exciting thing we do know is what happened after they got started. Mm -hmm. Angiosperms, as we discussed in the beginning, have, it is not exaggerative to say, taken over the world. Literally. Yes. Yes. (laughs) yes they have they have over the world is overgrown with them (laughs) (laughs) Allie, can you tell us a bit about what is called the angiosperm radiation
3: i would love to so that's when things get exciting for me because i'm going to be honest i am biased towards the cenozoic so once we get like the end of cretaceous that's cool but once we get into the cenozoic that's when I get really excited. So, at the so in the Cretaceous, so early early Cretaceous and into the um, the Cenozoic, you we have this widespread radiation. So basically, angiosperms were there in the early Cretaceous, but as you get into the late Cretaceous, they take over. Um, and there's probably a lot of things that are leading to this. So. Like, I'm, like we mentioned before, you're seeing a lot of changes happening at the end of the Cretaceous, apart from, you know, a little, you know, <laughs> um, meteor incident. Of, even apart from that, you, you're seeing these big issues. Um, so you're having these major climatic and tectonic changes. So... Like the continents are moving. You have these intercontinental seas that are drying up. You have in, therefore you have increased sea level. You have increased CO2 and you have the climate is warming. So things are going nuts. In addition.
0: It's the nuts are a type of fruit. <laughs> it's true. Things are literally going nuts. It's, it's true.
3: Um, and so because of this, you're having a lot of disturbance. Um, and, angiosperms are good at disturbance so if you think about if you have ever taken um, an ecology class you have probably learned about succession Mm -hmm. and so if you have you know something you have you have a fire you know you have clear-cut something is disturbed you have succession you, you have this pattern of plants that come in and replace what was there before and by and large that is dominated by angiosperms because angiosperms are kind of live fast, die young, except for some Mm -hmm. of them don't die so young, but they do live fast. So um, angiosperms tend to be more drought resistance than gymnosperms. They have this, like I said, this weedy life history. They can get in and live anywhere. I mean, you've seen dandelions. They can live (laughs) anywhere. Yeah. Um, And they have really rapid reproduction. So gymnosperms tend to be, um, more of a tortoise. So they live very slowly. They reproduce very slowly. Um, and so if you ever see, um, if, if, if you've ever seen a cycad, a cycad can be knee high and be hundreds of years old because they just don't grow very quickly. Whereas um, an angiosperm, just like I'm a tree now, it doesn't take very long for them to grow. And in addition, so we have... So in the, um, the, the late Cretaceous, we have evidence for increased charcoal. And to get charcoal, that means you're burning things. So yeah. we have this increased fire. We have these new fire regimes. We were having fire occurring in places and in, in um, frequencies that weren't happening before. In response to this, we're having this high productivity because uh, the plants are, the angiosperms are able to take over. After the fire, again, this succession, which is increasing the biome mass, which is also leading to more fire. You got more stuff to burn. Um, and there are groups, uh, there are many groups of angiosperms that do better when you burn them. And particularly if you think about grasslands. So mm-hmm. we're not in, you know, geologically, we're not to the grasslands yet, but grasslands, if you burn them, that... That way they are able to grow better. They are able to incorporate that organic material into the soil and it ends up helping them out. But yeah, so having all of these difference in these climatic and tectonic changes, this disturbance, these fires basically shook everything up and the angiosperms were like, oh yeah. We got this. This is our time. We, we've been waiting. And so then that's when you see this huge increase. And they, they begin um, spreading and dominating environments that used to be primarily gymnosperms. It's, re- it's, it's really interesting to see how quickly it happens geologically. Because it's it's basically, and now they're everywhere. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, it's the episode of Futurama with the with the robots that keep evolving overnight. Just he's w- going to sleep, waking up, and there's just trees and flowers
0: everywhere.
3: Yes, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right.
0: So the animals at the end of the Cretaceous, again, that the Cretaceous, we're at the end of the age of dinosaurs, end of the age of reptiles, are suddenly surrounded by flowers and fruits.
3: Yes. So there has been, um, it has been suggested that there was some coevolution between the fruits and some of the herbivorous dinosaurs. There seems to be l- less evidence of that than we thought. But it's still a really okay. cool idea, right? So um, Bob Bakker was one of the first people to suggest this, um, that you have these big groups, these big dinosaurs, and suddenly you have this very nutritious source of food. Of course they're going to eat it. Um, they're probably as closely yeah. tied as... as I personally would have liked. But it is it is really interesting because if they it's it's a neat thought experiment that as um like towards the end of the Cretaceous, we're having this 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 change in nutrient availability, you have suddenly these much more nutritious plants. If you think about like trying to eat a pine tree, that's not gonna go well for you.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: But there are are you know, in, in angiosperms, you can eat the fruit, sometimes you can eat the flowers, you can often eat the leaves, so they're just, by and large, a, a better meal. And so it, it's interesting to think that maybe if they, you know, dinosaurs hadn't had that bad day on the Yucatan, um, might, they, they might have been able to, to um, really utilize that, that new resource.
0: So this at this point we should we've been mentioning it throughout the episode we should specify and, and, and be very clear that one of the big main purposes of fruit is to be eaten and pooped out yes so that an animal will eat it walk across the field poop the seeds out later and you have dispersed and one of the main functions of flowers is to attract pollinators yes that you will say look how pretty and and what lovely I smell and bees and flies and butterflies come over and they drink from the the flower and they collect pollen and they carry it to another flower. Angiosperms have done one of the most ingenious things that evolution has ever come up with and said, hey, there's all these animals all over the place. Why don't we get just start putting our seeds in them <laughs> mm-hmm. and they will walk around and carry stuff. And that brings us to what my favorite thing about angiosperms is, and that is this very tight coevolution. Yeah, combined evolution is this this cooperative evolution with animals. Yes,
3: and it's it's amazing because some of it you, people are very familiar with. So when you think about pollination, when you think about pollinators, um, it's so commonplace. So if you so gymnosperms are, I think, only wind pollinated. So think about pine trees, just send it out that pollen. If you've ever parked under a pine tree and you come back and your car is yellow,
2: <laughs>
3: that's why. They're wind pollinated. Um, whereas most angiosperms are far more selective. Um, they're not just like sending out their babies into the ether. Um, they are attracting um, these pollinators who come to them and make them do the hard work. And it's really interesting because you can actually, by, just by looking at a flower... You know, no pollinators around, you can actually have a pretty good idea of what kind of pollinator will come to that type of flower. So, if you think about like hummingbirds, hummingbirds have these long bills um, and they can hover and they're very good at detecting the color red. That's why Mm -hmm. hummingbird feeders are red, because hummingbirds primarily feed on red or reddish flowers they tend to have these long tubes um and they tend to be they they tend to be oriented in such a way that the hummingbird can feed on it by hovering so over time you have this relationship that hey when I have flowers that are shaped like this hummingbirds come to them I'm going like I've made all these babies and they're going to be like that too um same thing with um Um, flowers that bees come to tend to be more symmetrical and they tend to be blue or yellow, uh, colors that are easier for bees to see. And often they have these, um, nectar guides that are in ultraviolet that are basically, um. Oh yeah. Yeah. A little
0: runway. Yeah. So it's basically. I learned about that in the magic school. That's what I was thinking
3: (laughs) of. That's where I learned it too. (laughs) Yeah. It's basically just these lines pointing like, get food here, eat at Joe's sort of thing. Um. Which is really cool. And they tend to have um, flowers that. um, So very often they have flowers that the bee will have to go into. So Mm -hmm. kind of maneuver into it. And then they'll shake it onto themselves. They'll shake the the pollen onto the bee. Um, uh, Butterflies often um, will go to flowers that have nectar rewards. um, Because that's that's what butterflies are eating. And they're eating this nectar. Um, Moths. We'll go to white flowers that are open at night because that's when the, the moths are most active and that way they can see them in the dark. Um, and they also tend to be very fragrant because again, they have to get a moth to find them in the dark. Um, it's similar. Um, that's uh, also true of um, flowers that are pollinated by bats.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. And then you
3: have things that are pollinated by flies Yes. And that's my favorite. They tend to be <laughs> flat, easy to access, and they smell bad.
0: Yeah. Like the Rafflesia flowers. Yes, exactly. Which, fellow nerds, is what Vileplume is based off of. Yeah. The Pokemon, the big, red, smelly flowers. Yes. Are for attracting flies. Which completely changes
1: how i view, when i first learned that completely changed how i viewed him because he always looks so chipper and happy and now it's just like you smell bad <laughs> he smells like death he's like that one kid in class that can't smell himself yes it's <laughs> just like hi guys what's up well,
3: and uh it's funny because um so corpse flowers don't flower very often and when they do, they smell so bad. And it's a very slow process. Um, a few years ago, I went to the Missouri Botanical Gardens for research. And I was in the gardens and they had a corpse flower. And I was there like a week or two before it bloomed. But it was funny because every botanist I talked to was like, did you get to smell it? Like, no, I didn't get to smell it.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's got a, they have such like a, how fantasy quality because it's they only flower so often right. and they're huge and they smell bad and weird and they're they're very unique looking. Yes. Like they've got this giant bowl in the middle.
3: I, I have a selfie in front of the corpse flower. Yeah.
1: That's <laughs> awesome.
0: Nice. So yeah, that they're, they're cool. It's so fascinating to think that right, the angiosperms evolved to take advantage of animals, but to in, in, in a way that – I can't think of very many animals that do this where they have evolved to be delicious.
2: Yeah. Right. Like
0: their whole thing is to say, here is food and you should eat it and it is me. Yeah. Like, I, I am making food and I want you to eat me and that from there the plants have continuously adapted – to attracting certain animals and the animals have continuously adapted to feeding on certain plants and there's th- that's this is what coevolution yes. is just that incredible evolutionary intertwinement
1: and they they can just rock it off once they get in a in a symbiosis to really really weird relationships and it's
3: amazing how specialized they can be like there are flowers that can only be pollinated by one animal nobody else fits yeah but it is an arms race because you you know then the pollinator is like well i'll just take a little bit more nectar and the plant's like no that's expensive to make so i'm gonna make it harder for you to get the nectar and Mm -hmm. it's really interesting
0: you got uh, these mixed signals. Yes, exactly. <laughs> actually, it's actually very reminiscent of what we talked about in episode fifty-three, which was the baculum episode. Mm-hmm. Yes, where we talked about sexual selection yes, and yeah. how you'll have male and female parts evolving to be the perfect balance of welcoming and not welcome. Yeah. Like, yes. yes okay let let's mate not that much mating just <laughs> <Yeah>. just <laughs> the right amount of mating right
3: exactly exactly <laughs> um and we and we've talked about other it's not just flowers right because you also have that coevolution with grazers and grasslands
0: yes that we talked yes, about before in episode 38
3: exactly so you have these groups that again are are you have the grazers that are evolving these these bigger teeth that they can wear down over time so they can eat these plants that are, that's full of grit. (laughs) Um, But it's also really interesting because one of my favorite parts, definitely one of my favorite parts of co-evolution between is the relationship between plants and animals, specifically these, um, these animals that originally dispersed these seeds that are no longer here.
0: Yes. Yes. Ooh. I was thinking about. I'm so glad you brought this. This up. is
3: my. I. This is my favorite. So, um, for example, avocados. Yes. I was. Yep, yep, it's, it's, yep. This is the. This is the normal example. So, avocados are a big fruit with a huge seed that needs to pass through the digestive uh, system of an animal in order to naturally sprout. And there's nothing today. That is big enough to not choke and die on an avocado seed and let it to pass through its system. Because um, a, a jaguar might be big enough, but it's a little bit too big, and that's not what a jaguars are obligate carnivores. So they're not going to be <laughs> nomming down on avocados.
0: So avocados are new world. They're, yes, they're in the Americas. Yes. Yes. So like an elephant could do it, but there are no exactly. elephants around. There used mm-hmm. to be.
3: There used yes, to be yes. elephants, so that's what probably was eating them. So you have these um, proboscideans, so, or, you know, relatives to elephants. Um, you have things like gonfothyrs, which are the shovel-tusk elephants and are my favorite. They are so weird-looking, and I love them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they are, could very easily eat An avocado, and just let it pass on through, and keep on trucking through the forest. Um, Also, giant ground sloths would have been big enough to do this. Um, But
0: episode twenty-four. But
3: even closer (laughs) to home, um, so I'm from Michigan, and everything that I know, I relate back to Michigan. Um, So in Michigan, we have um, um, the Kentucky coffee tree and the pawpaw, both of which were originally um, probably dispersed by this mammalian megafauna, by these mastodons and mammoths that are no longer there. So they're not, they're not, uh, they don't have that natural dispersal method that they used to have. And so many plants, um, I didn't really talk about this, but many plants... Plants do best if they use sexual um, uh, reproduction. So you're mixing the egg and the sperm and we, make, we, we mix all the genes together and we make something new. Um, you don't always have to do that, though. So you can um, clone, you can self where you're using your own um, sperm and egg, which is interesting. Or you can just uh, propagate vegetatively. So basically just like, I'm going to put more of me over there. I'm going to sprout up there. If you ever cut down a willow tree and then not ground up the, the, uh, the trunk, the stump after you do it, it's just going to sprout up more willow tree. That's (laughs) why you, that's why you have to use a stump grinder.
0: Plants never die. Yeah. The first time
1: I learned that plants could just do that. I immediately went to my botany professor and was like, all right, explain to me why these aren't colonial man of war, weird things like (laughs) what? What is what is this monstrosity?
0: Aliens. Yes. <laughs> Plants are aliens.
3: Of the candidates for the largest living thing is a grove of, I believe it's aspen that is that has been that's it is colonial, you could say, in that yeah. it's vegetatively reproductive. It's just like clone, 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 clone. It's called pando. But yeah, it's huge. Mm-hmm. It's a <laughs> forest it is all genetically identical because it couldn't find a mate, so it's like fine, I'll make my own. And it will be me.
0: <laughs> Which is another horror story. Yes. Yeah. That sounds ugh. that that's that's the plant version of Grey Goo is what that <laughs> is. <laughs> my favorite sort of and, and this is a subject for another episode. We the last twenty minutes has been several subjects for other episodes. <laughs> I think now and this is gonna lead into a question for you, Allie. Okay. Uh, and in fact I'll start with this question. Are all carnivorous plants angiosperms? Yes. Which makes perfect sense because these are plants that evolved to attract pollinators. Yes. And a bunch of them have eventually reached the conclusion of hey, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just bringing protein to myself. Yes. And so they'll trap insects, usually insects, they'll yes. trap insects. But then of course there are insects that have evolved to work their way around that. Yes. There is uh, at a spe- at least one species of fly, these are hoverflies, that lay their eggs in carnivorous plants and then the larvae are adapted to avoid getting stuck and digested. Oh my
2: god. That's so, so now cool.
0: the bugs are taking advantage of the plants and it's just this ridiculous back and forth with, with this this core this one Shared evolutionary foundation that has given rise to all this insane diversity. And
3: it's really cool too because um, th- there are actually multiple um, lineages of carnivorous plants. It has a ero- like it has come up multiple times. Different groups have been like It makes
1: perfect That's sense. A good idea. With, with completely <laughs> different means. Oh, That's always what gets me. Is it's yes. just like all right, well they use teeth, so I'm going to use teeth. And it's like all right, well I'm just going to be a pitfall. The other one's like, what about glue? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. It's just, have, you,
0: have you tried glue? Oh, like, I was gonna say a thing about the um the the megafaunal plant yes. thing. Mm-hmm. Before we get too far away from it. Um the other day at the lab in the Grey Fossil site, one of the volunteers brought me over to his picking station to show me a thorn, and he we put it next to a penny. This thorn is longer than the penny. Ooh.
2: Wow. It's this,
0: like, super long thorn. And he, that the volunteer's name is David, he nicknamed it the Mastodon Stabber. Well, <laughs> he's not
3: wrong. Because. Yeah. Um, so groups of, so that are related to Acacia, so, um... Oh this is the part when I can't remember common names. It's pseudoacacia. Um locust, the locust. Sure. So the 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 honey locust <laughs> has these spikes. So basically if you upset a honey locust, you you abuse it in some way or you graze on it, um it will send out these spikes. And it is not just spikes. It's spikes and spikes and spikes and spikes. And uh <laughs> they've done <laughs> studies that showed that in general, plants are able. I believe. I believe this is true. That they they found like the highest proportion of these spikes that were like basically at mastodon eye level, which is just yes. amazing. Um yes. At the Waco Zoo, there is a um, a honey locust near the elephant enclosure that is just covered in spikes because the elephants really like it. <laughs> they
0: won't leave it alone. <laughs>
1: That's awesome. I had. I had. One really quick of the the animal interactions. My favorite example of the crazy relations, and I don't know, I don't remember what kind of flower it is, and I, I remember what it looks like because it was a documentary, but I don't remember what it is, and I don't even remember if it was a bee or some other bug, but it's the one that taps it on the lower back that has the little part of the flower that actually bends down when the bee shoves its oh, head in. Oh, yes! And the 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 um pollen is dabbed <laughs> on... On the back, just just a little bit. And so that when it goes another flower, it actually picks it up off of that spot. A
0: little me- A little mechanical feature.
3: Yes. What?
0: So the listeners can't see that Will is arch- like a crane I'm, arching his hand over to demonstrate. I'm dabbing my other arm. See, okay. but now there's the kids don't think that dabbing means what you're dabbing saying. Means- I know. <laughs> Dabbing's a thing now. No, it is gently applying. I never will. (laughs) (laughs) I never...
1: They ask me at the aquarium all the time. I never will.
0: (laughs) The plant is reaching over behind the animal and and gently applying pollen to it. smuts. Speaking of... I have one last question. Speaking of relationships between plants and animals, are all of our common domesticated plants angiosperms?
3: Yes, so the only domesticated plant that is not an angiosperm is going to be like Christmas tree farms.
0: Okay. that, that makes was, sense. That's what I was thinking. Yes. That makes sense. But all of our crops and stuff. All of our know, crops are angiosperms. All the fruits and vegetables and all that are Because we're eating... They're the, the tasty yeah, plants. Yeah,
3: exactly. We're eating the fruits. Um, right. Or sometimes we're eating the leaves. But by and large, we're eating the fruits of the organism. And like I said before, if you eat an angiosperm leaf... You'll probably get some nutrients. If you try to eat like pine needles, you're just going to have a bad time. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, not great. Don't do that. Allie, thank you so much for sharing with us the wonderful world of angiosperms. The the delicious world. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's very tasty. I was thinking throughout the episode what my favorite angiosperm is. Yeah, what is it? And the answer is broccoli. (laughs) (laughs) Because that plant, I can't remember what that plant is, but it's broccoli and cauliflower.
3: It's the brassica plant.
0: Yes, there you go. It's it's like five different delicious vegetables are all that plant, and it's wonderful.
3: Thanks, Brassica.
0: (laughs) Watermelons. Watermelons are my favorite.
3: Oh, that's a good choice. So I've noticed a uh, a pattern. I like trees. You like food.
0: I like food. yes, that is, 100% that is true my favorite my favorite mammals are the tasty ones Yes.
3: well thank you so much for having me I, I like having an excuse to talk about plants
0: <laughs> this is great listeners uh, thank you to everyone uh, who requested this episode as we s- said as we would have said this is one of the most requested topics that we have received mm-hmm. on the podcast Thank you, as always, to our patrons for uh, supporting us. Check out the blog post. There will be pictures and links, and hopefully, we'll have Allie send us some photos of her favorite plant fossils yes. so we can put them up. We release new episodes every fortnight. So stick around. Two weeks from the release of this episode, we'll have another one. And as always, let us know what you want to hear about. If you want, every now and then, people say, I, I want to hear more about plants. Mm-hmm. sometimes people even say i want to hear Allie again yes and hopefully this episode has sated those people's uh, desires for, for now <laughs> for now yeah we're just gonna have to keep bringing her back it's gonna be like an addiction please, please. <laughs> is that it will have i forgotten anything i think we're good all right well Allie, thank you once again so much you will be back i'm sure oh, I hope at some so. point thank you the next time we have when we do a carnivorous plants episode hints hint listeners <laughs> suggest that please i would love to please do please a suggest yes <laughs> yes 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 we do actually have a whole bunch of other plant requests so mm-hmm. there's there's stuff to do uh one last note after this if you are a patron uh we're going to hop on over to the patreon specific stuff and record some after chat with Ali. so if you want to hear a little bit of bonus discussion Join us on Patreon or, you know, subscribe to Patreon if you'd like. Other than that, I think we're done. Good night, everybody. Bye. Ta-ta. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on patreon the song you're hearing is called on the origin of species by protodome which we found at ocremix.org thanks again for listening we hope you'll join us next time